Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to revisit our conversation with Judy Kawamoto, winner of the 2022 Evans Handcart Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University for her book, Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. Of the roughly 120,000 people forced from their homes by Executive Order 9066, around 5,000 were able to escape incarceration beforehand by fleeing inland. In her book, uh, Judy Kawamoto offers insight into voluntary evacuation, a little-known Japanese-American experience during World War II, and she addresses her personal and often unconscious reactions to her parents' trauma as well as her own subsequent travels around much of the world, exploring, learning, enjoying, but also uh, unconsciously acting out a continual search for home. Here is the first part of my conversation from January of 2021 with Judy Kawamoto. Judy Kawamoto is a retired uh, psychotherapist and joins us uh, for the hour today. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good, good, good to have you on. Fascinating uh, history and uh, and your personal experience as well. I wonder if we could just uh, start out with a brief passage uh, from the book. I understand you have the book with you. Uh, so this is just the first page uh, from the preface. I wonder if you could just uh, read that uh, that for us. Page Roman numeral okay. nine. Let me see if I can find that. Um, so, I'm sorry, the first page from the preface? Yes, yes, just that first page from the oh. preface. Okay. Um, digging up stories about the past, about one's family, and about one's early life, wherever that may have taken place, can be a trying affair. So many of these stories, at least for me, have been difficult memories, memories of racism and hardship and poverty. Memories that under normal circumstances, one tries not to dwell on. In fact, growing up, my personal motto was not try to remember, but try to forget. But life doesn't always let you have your way. (laughs) There's a particular question I know I will be asked whenever I meet another Japanese American over the age of, say, 50. A question I always have to respond to with the same disappointing answer. The question... What camp was your family in? My answer, we didn't go to a camp. The questioner is not referring to Girl Scout camp or church camp or junior high school leadership camp. No, the questioner, clearly seeing I am a woman of Japanese ancestry, is referring to the World War II incarceration camps for Japanese Americans. Yeah, that's very striking. And you go on to say that, uh, you know, over time uh, you got this question you were you know, irritated, but but mostly frustrated. But you say most of all left you feeling unseen and like a perpetual outsider. So outsider among even potentially, you know, uh, a community which, which could have included you. Exactly, yes. Uh, so why did you, uh, obviously, uh, you know, very interesting history, but why did you especially want to tell your story? Well, I think that this that little interchange I had with that person who um, when I said we didn't go to a camp i was I was really stunned by the fact that he just wasn't interested then he didn't want to know why he didn't want to find out what did happen to my family. Uh, he just kind of walked away, and it really was um, it was so kind of 
dis- disconfirming, or if that's a word, it made me feel so invisible. And I also just got really angry, and I thought, well, you know, there are other stories here that should be told, and I'm going to tell this one because I feel like my parents need some recognition about what, what really did happen to them because it certainly wasn't fun or easy or... Um, they didn't get to stay where they had planned to live and planned to make their lives. So I decided to write that story. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Um, so before we get into your story, uh, and there's some uh, you found out doing research that some five thousand uh, other folks who who experienced the, the kind of similar history that you did. Um, uh, but remind us about the, uh, the Japanese-Americans who were, who were sent to what they were called internment camps for people who may be a little fuzzy with that. Uh, this is Executive Order 9066. Uh, FDR issued this order. What was the rationale? What was the reasoning that was given? Well, my understanding is that it was because um, the, the rationale that was spoken and told to the people was that they were a security risk. They were afraid that the government and some of the, the people around them were afraid that Japanese Americans, because I, I think partly because um, they were so uh, close together and in less, some rather large communities like in Los Angeles and, and the Bay Area and, and parts of Washington and Oregon, they were rather large communities, and the feeling was that these people would probably um, rebel, uh, side with the, with the nation of Japan, and could not be trusted, and therefore needed to be put away someplace where they could be watched. And um, I, I mean, I can understand that that rationale was given. My personal feeling is that the people who they were wanting to get rid of were doing very well. They had very um, per- lucrative personal businesses, some of them, and they were doing very well with farming in places like the Central Valley of California and even down south a little further with some of the area that was very arid. And most people just turned up their noses to it and said, oh, that's not going to grow anything. What? Why bother? But my understanding is that some Japanese Americans did go down to that area and figured out how to uh, probably irrigate and um, grow some some pretty um, lucrative crops down there. So the fear was, uh-oh, you know, these people are going to take us over and um, we're not going to have it. So they were they were rounded up and put in camps. Mm. Unless we forget, uh, I'm assuming that some 120,000 uh, people, most were citizens, right? And and so this is essentially, yes. as, as you write, yes. uh, tossing out the Constitution. Exactly, yes. Um, I My understanding, my figures that I, I found, and this is now several, of course, several years old, uh, two-thirds were American-born citizens, and their elders, their you know, their parents, their grandparents, were um, still considered that term, that weird term of um, uh, aliens. And um, they actually were not allowed to become citizens 
uh, to some early law. So uh, otherwise, they probably would have wanted to become citizens and taken, you know, whatever tests or do whatever process they had to go to to become citizens. But they were they were not allowed to do that through through law. So um, there was not a question of loyalty really within the, their communities. They were all very loyal, and they liked being where they were, and they liked being. Um, able to be citizens when they could. One more thing on uh, those who were, who were sent to internment camps, before we get to your story. Um, the, the, I, I believe uh, most were promised you can return to your lives, you know, after the security risk is over. Uh, but, but that didn't turn out to be the case, right? Uh, the businesses, homes, had already, yeah. already been taken over. Yeah, I. The, my understanding is that Yes, exactly what you said, that so many of their homes, quote, you know, and businesses, quote, were were pretty quickly taken over by people who were not doing as well, white people who were not doing as well, uh, or people who just thought, wow, this is a, this is a good moment. And um, my, um, a few years ago, I went to um, the International District in Seattle just to kind of check out where my parents had uh, had been living and working, and um, there there's very clear information there that um, some of the businesses that were so hastily evacuated because the the people you know who own the Japanese Americans who own the businesses didn't really have a chance to do anything to get to get rid of them to sell them or to take them take them apart and store things. They were just you know ushered out and um it was pretty fast the um the takeover by the uh, white population and they were very pleased to be able to just move into businesses and homes that had pretty much been left the way they um they'd been functioning all along um so businesses were well stocked and homes were um most people didn't have an opportunity to take furniture with them or any, any major um, personal belongings except, you know, they could pack a suitcase. My understanding is that what I've always heard and read is that you could pack one suitcase and um, that was it. And you were, you were taken off to, at the time, they didn't know where. So... Um, I, I did visit some of those places in uh, in Seattle and did see some of the businesses and um, a museum that was built for uh, documenting that history and um, it was it was interesting because that's a fairly large district and um, and some of the businesses there are still you know they're still thriving um, they haven't uh, most of the People who uh, run them and own them are not Japanese Americans. Many are other um, ethnic Asians, um, Cambodians and Laotians and um, Koreans. But um, they eventually, you know, they were eventually able to take on the businesses from some of the white people who who had tried and some pretty unsuccessfully to take over the businesses that the Japanese Americans had left. Mm. 
So um, tell us about voluntary evacuation. This is in quotes, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so what, what happened with your parents and others like them? Did you, they see the handwriting on the wall, or did somebody tell them you, you got to leave, or what, what happened? Well, apparently, my understanding is that the, the rule was that um, if you had some relative or had some friends or had a job waiting for you in what, what was generally just called the interior of the country um, at that time, you could go there and reestablish yourself. Um but that was just not the case for most people. You know, they had established their, themselves as um, professionals and as business people in the areas that they ended up having to leave. So um, in the case of my parents, my grandparents, my father's parents, were farming in Wyoming, and they were doing fairly well. Um, they didn't have a lot of competition from other um, Asian Americans at that point, <laughs> and um, Wyoming still probably being pretty um, un- unpopulated. Um, and so my parents decided that they would just go there um, and stay with my grandparents because uh, my father said, "I, I just, I'm just refusing to raise my children in in a camp." I'm um, I'm just not doing it. So they um, they left and stayed with my grandparents. Hmm. Uh, so you took, in the book, you you, write, you take a trip to Seattle, you know, many years later, of course. Um, trying, I guess, uh, in essence, trying to find out what, you're, what you're, the life your parents lost, right, when they were forced to yes, move yes. to the interior. Uh-huh. What, what, did you, what did you find? What, uh, what kind of life do you think they would have had if they hadn't have had to go to Wyoming and then Montana and Colorado? Well, you know, as I, as I um, had said a little bit ago, that the actual international district had changed a lot, and um, the, a lot of the businesses that had been Japanese-American uh, were first taken over by whites, and they many of them did not do well because People, um, bless their hearts, the white people in the community just refused to, <laughs> refused to um, give them any business because they were they were aware of the um, the unfairness of the whole thing. And so, um, other ethnic Asians had had taken over much of the the um, professional and business lives of, of people living in the international district. My parents, at the time of the evacuation, um, my father was a student at the University of Washington, and um, he had to work during the day, but he went to classes at night, and um, he um, was, you know, trying to hold on to that because one thing that he, and of course, I think the stereotype is in part true, that, that Japanese-Americans really value is an education. So he was doing what he could to get his, and um, uh, it was, you know, it wasn't easy and it wasn't particularly fun, but he was hanging in there working uh, working days and um, 
going to classes at night. So um, when when they left, he had to give all of that up. Yeah, and uh, and, and and you're right that your your mother also lost a community of of other you know young Japanese American mothers and uh, a support system, right? Yes, yes. She, um, uh, which is always an interesting thing to me because I I never quite understood how she got interested in that, or maybe it was just that she um, could see people, you know, around her taking taking on this kind of work. But she became trained as a, a beautician, and one thing that she got very good at was cutting hair. <laughs> so um, she, when we were growing up, she would always cut our hair, um, our meaning myself and my two sisters, she would cut cut our hair because she knew how to do it, and um, so when when they had to uh, leave, she had to give all of that up. And um, there's a process where you, if you're doing that work, you you have to renew a license to to be to remain a beautician, and um, I think it's probably a state license. And so she has. Uh, we have records. My sister, who keeps some of these um, documents, has records of my mom, my mom's uh, licenses for for maybe five years or so, and then of course they just stopped altogether because she was, um, in, you know, went to camp and or went to Wyoming and uh, um, didn't pick up the business there. Yeah, it's very poignant uh, that you know. Every year, and then they stop, and, and never to be renewed, right? Right. Let's take a, a brief break. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking today with Judy Kawamoto. She's winner of the 2022 Evans Handcart Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University for her book, Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. So, so uh, just briefly, Judy Kawamoto, you, you were born there in Wyoming, but at a certain point your parents, um, well, I, I, you're right, your, your dad, even though he grew up there in Sheridan, uh, couldn't find work. Um, I guess people wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't hire him. And so there was land, uh, in Montana and I guess the government said, well, let's, let's have folks raise, uh, raise food, right? Yes. Yes. And especially, uh, sugar beets because people were languishing for, for their, um, because of their lack of ability to get sugar. And I'm not quite sure why that was true, but um, of course we probably all heard some stories about people in England really hurting because they couldn't make frosting for their cakes and they could and make cookies and so that was it was kind of a big deal to be able to raise sugar sugar beets and make sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and your uh, it sounds like your grandparents moved with you to Montana. You know, I I am not clear exactly how they got there. I mm-hmm. believe that they moved first because they seemed to be set up before we we arrived. Um, so I don't know what made them leave Sheridan. I never really quite got that piece of history. 
much to my um, regret. I wish I knew more about that. Yeah. Uh, I want to pause here just to just to mention your grandmother. Uh, sounds like a remarkable woman. Uh, so she was married to a fellow. He decided to go back to Japan for whatever reason. And she said, no, I'm yes. not going back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was Grandma. <laughs> So I guess she like she yeah, she yeah. knew you right she knew that she'd be giving up uh, quite a few freedoms uh, as a woman if if she went back to Japan at that time right. Yes, I think that that was probably what made her decide not to do it because she was she was very um, uh, I think not only um, a hard worker but she was pretty creative and um, she she was I think brave she wasn't easily scared off. She was willing to try things and take a chance on, you know, making, doing something. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about your parents. Uh, they, you learned years later, I think, uh, theirs was an arranged marriage. Yes. Boy, what a shock that was. I had no idea because, of course, they, to me, were a, a modern generation and, um, you know, growing up... Um, in the 50s and early 60s, uh, I graduated high school in 61, so mostly the 50s, I guess. And if you think back about on that time, um, the the role of women was pretty prescribed, and women looked a certain way. Um, you know, they had usually had their hair done, well done, and wore lipstick and makeup, and um, at that time, big, puffy crinoline skirts were coming in, petticoats were coming in, so their skirts were kind of sticking sticking out and looking very fancy, and sweaters, and in school, the girls would wear um, sweaters and skirts and um, uh, bobby socks that would match the color of their sweaters and some kind of maybe white buck shoes or loafers or something. And so it was very, um, people were very, you know, they were conscious of looking right and doing doing the right thing in terms of fashion. So, um, so I think my grandmother was somebody who paid attention to that, even though she couldn't always, um, always do exactly the, the most fashionable thing because she was, she was working most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, before we get to, uh, to, to some of the rest of this, I wonder if you have a passage from the book you'd like to, to read. Um, well, I do. It's not necessarily, um, exactly to the point of what we've been talking about, but I do have a, excuse me, I have a passage here about, oh, sorry, I'm having um, some allergy stuff going on. I oh. think it's the um, <laughs> the dry leaves and things here in Colorado. Right, so right. A little croaky. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, it's about when we moved to to Denver, mm, and yeah. I um, I had to go to a junior high school that was uh, for me. It was a big junior high school, probably three hundred kids or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, it was 
it was my father was dead set on not having us uh, get cheated out of our education because, of course, he always felt that he had been that uh, cheated, and um, so he made sure we lived in the in the part of the city that had decent schools, and so we were <laughs> we were living in East Denver, and um, I went to my my class in, in junior high school and was pretty shocked that uh, the the class, just my my class alone, probably was as big as the entire little country school that I had just left. So <laughs> it was a, an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a section I can read from that. Y- yes. Um, the more I took in with this new junior high school, the more I wondered where I belonged and I didn't seem to fit in comfortably in any specific group. I had never met anyone Jewish before junior high school, but I soon learned the meaning of words like synagogue, menorah, and Hanukkah, and their importance to my many classmates who came from Jewish backgrounds. Some came from families who were very liberal in their religious and social practices. Others were from families who practiced their religion more strictly. I was learning to make distinctions among my friends. Other friends came from families who were considered old Denver families, meaning they had taste and manners and old money. My family was struggling working class, but because of the elevated value we placed on education, I seemed to be making friends with the kids who clearly came from much better off middle class families. Our values, goals, and aspirations weren't all that different. It was a financial gap that separated us. Well, that and some of the social behaviors that only my siblings and I noticed. As a minority in every sense, it was up to us to learn the ways of the mainstream. I clearly remember the shock and confusion I experienced the first time a friend offered me a cookie. We were having lunch together at school, and she offered me one of the cookies on her lunch tray. I dutifully and automatically responded with the manners I had learned at home from the time I was able to learn. I politely refused, waiting to be coaxed until I finally gave in and took one. But my friend, taking me at my word, took a cookie for herself and put the rest aside. I thought this was round one and that clearly our little drama was unfinished. She would come back with the cookies and insist that I have one. Only then could I comply. But for her, that was the end of it. She had offered and then taken her own cookie. I could tell she wasn't being rude, so this must be the way things were done. It took a few more times of testing the rules and ending up deprived until I eventually learned to accept something the first time it was offered, as that was likely to be the last time. Yeah. Yeah. Learning kind of the hard way. The the rules (laughs) there, yeah. It got it kind of low stakes, but still. Um, Yeah, thanks for reading that. Appreciate that. Uh, so uh, it's in junior high, uh, you know, I think any person of that age uh, feels the need to fit in. You you had some, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you felt then about, about fitting in. Of course, there are larger questions of, you know, culture and assimilation, but uh, um, sounds like you were making friends, but of course you were, you were a minority as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, it- you know what? When I think back on it today, I think of how um, 
Well, I, I understand two two parts to this, I guess. One is that I'm very I'm very grateful to the um, generosity and the welcoming um, atmosphere that the school, the junior high, um, established when when I first came because I started slightly after um, school has school had already begun and um, and so I was you know I was coming in late I had to register late I had to be assigned classes the whole thing so I kind of stood out to begin with but um, I, I was very I was very um, I think surprised and very pleased that people were were very accepting and generous and um, didn't act strange around me or didn't um, ask me a lot of weird questions. Um, they just kind of took it in stride that I was gonna I was gonna be part of the <laughs> part of their class. Mm. Um, but I think the other other part was that I I really did have to learn new ways of being in the world and and it was definitely um it was different from what i had grown up with and the way i was used to thinking about people and interactions with people which was i think in japanese culture the traditional culture is that you um you think of the other person first and you do what you can to make them comfortable and accommodate their needs and um and they're appreciative, and I think the underlying unspoken aspect of that is that you know that that will be reciprocated um, in time or with the opportunity. It's not; it, it doesn't go unnoticed. And so, if I'm visiting a friend and um, they go all out and offer me cookies and food and um, that works, then um, when they come visit me, I'm. it's pretty much expected that I would do the same. So um, that was not necessarily true growing up in a, in a white world where everybody thinks of themselves as individuals and independent and trying to kind of make it on their own and prove, prove themselves and... Um, if you can keep up, fine. And if you can't, well, that becomes your problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to just read a couple of sentences uh, here and then have you respond. Um, this is from the, the chapter that I mentioned, Mind the Gap. My parents created a very large gap in my life, you write, by waiting until I was an older teenager living in Denver to mention why they had left Seattle for Wyoming all those years before. Then skipping down a bit, decades later, in my work as a psychotherapist, it became clear to me one motivation for that kind of pervasive silence is trauma. And so, you, and you talk about trauma. Of course, you know about trauma as a psychotherapist. Um, so you write that this is not unusual. Um, the big traumatic event. Uh, you know, folks um, have have a need or, or an impulse to let's just get on with life and pretend everything's normal, right? And one way you deal with that is is not talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Just, so, um, yeah, so your parents dealt yeah, with yes, it, apparently. Keep this going. Way. <laughs> yeah, your parents dealt with this this way, apparently. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, they, um, I, I think it was both that that was, that's just kind of a, um, 
I guess, a, a, an almost universal way of dealing with trauma. Um, but it was also for, for my parents and for many Japanese Americans, it was shameful. It was so shameful to have been singled out like that and put in in camps and barricades, prisons, you know. And um, and so you certainly don't want to dwell on the shame. You want to prove that you're an upstanding citizen and you do all the right things and um, there's nothing shameful about you. So um, that was also, I think, a big reason why it just wasn't uh, subject to be discussed. You know, you carried on with life and you... You did all the things that were expected and more because you wanted to prove that you were worthy. So, um, and I think in the in Japanese culture, shame is much more um, of a prevalent feeling than in American culture, where it's more guilt. I think people tend to be made to feel guilty as opposed to feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go on to write that um, trauma never really goes away. It <clears throat> just never really gets talked about. It gets buried, consciously repressed, but not diffused. You see, then asked to think about traumas that can continue to do its dirty work long after the direct experience of the event, and I think handed down. Right? What? Uh, how did this? Uh, you know, I, I guess you felt like you had fairly normal childhood. I guess, but then these things uh, c- come out. Uh, what were your feelings at the time when you learned about this? Well, when I guess I guess when I really learned about it as a psychological um, aspect of of a person, I um, I started to think about how did I end up dealing with that trauma in my life? The fact that my parents had been um, removed and forced to live places where they didn't want to live, do things they didn't want to do, and never actualize themselves. Um, you know, I, I I started to understand more my sense of lifestyle, which was to not ever really feel like I had to settle down anywhere, like I could just pick up and take off and move to a new place, whether it was a new city, a new state, a new apartment, a new country, which I never quite made. <laughs> but, um, but I thought about it. Frequently, oh, I'll, I'll just move to another country because that would be fun and exciting and interesting. And um, so I, I never thought very much about about moving. Um, and you know, when you move here, it's it's basically very disrupting. Um, everything has to get packed up, and and then you know you have to find a place, then you have to unpack. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a big process. Um, but for some reason, I just I just never thought too much about it until I realized that that in a way it was a, a recapitulation of my my parents' experience of having to do that without any input from themselves, and um, in that I unconsciously was kind of acting that out that I didn't have to ever settle down and put pictures on my walls or um, buy a lot of uh, china or anything that would need a lot of work to be packed up and moved on. So um, I, I see that 
I saw that when I started to think of, think it over. I saw that, and I and I still see that now as an, a part of a of a response to trauma. Mm. What um, what has it done for you to to, to jump into this history? Your you know the overall history, your your family's history, your personal history, to to examine it. I guess there are painful aspects of digging it up, but uh, maybe some healing aspects as well. Yes, I I think so. Um, yes, I I um, you know I I don't think when I started to write that I had a particular goal, um, and I wish I could remember who told me this because I I can't. I just remember that I was told at some point, well, if you're, you want to be a serious writer, you have to do it every day. <laughs> I had to really think about that because I, I wasn't sure how serious a writer I wanted to be and doing it every day. But um, but I decided, okay, I'll give it a shot because I I think one of the, and this sounds very, um, it's kind of shallow, but I thought, yeah, you know, here I am. I've written a few, a few essays here and there, and what a drag to have to try to figure out how to get them published because I... I haven't written them just for the hell of it. I would like to see some of these thoughts that I have had over time um, shared with other people, and uh, in more in a more public manner than just telling a friend. And so, um, the thought of trying to figure out how to get an individual essay published was so overwhelming that when somebody said to me, "Well, you know, if you really want to," be serious about writing, you have to do it every day and you can write, write a book. I thought, well, I'll give that a shot because I could put everything together in one book and then if that doesn't um, take off or if people aren't interested, then okay, they're not interested in the book, but it's not like getting rejected for 10 essays or <laughs> or something, you know, along those lines. So that's kind of how it happened. And, um, and, the process itself, it was, um, it was difficult to to try to remember some of that stuff, of course, but because it wasn't pleasant. But it was also I wanted to honor my parents because, you know, they'd been through so much and they never got much. Um, you know, nobody really acknowledged what they'd been through, and they were just happy to be able to continue to work and take care of their families. But when you go through something like that, it does change your life. And I, uh, I just wanted to give them a nod and say thank you. You deserve some, um, you, you deserve some credit for doing all that, you know, and going through all that and, and surviving it. Actually, surviving it, it, it well, you know. You, uh, you write this well in the dedication for my parents, Rose and George Kawamoto. At a time when everything was taken away from them, they never let go of their humanity. Which of course speaks very well of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's who they were. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's uh, take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have uh, the, our last segment with uh, Judy Kawamoto, uh, who is author of "Forced Out: A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America." We'll have. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, we're revisiting a conversation with Judy Kawamoto 
winner of the 2022 Evans Handcart Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University for her book, Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. There are some very harsh ironies, of course, in this history. Uh, one that you uncovered is just breathtaking. Um, you learned at a certain point that, uh, I think this through reading an article or something, I'm not sure how you, I guess you can tell me how you learned this, um, but it, it was Japanese-American soldiers who liberated Dachau. I hadn't known that before I read the book. And they were threatened with court-martial if they if they said anything about it. Why, why was that? Well, I think that, I, I mean, I don't have any... Um, glowing and uh, highly intellectual understanding of that exactly. It's just that I, I think that racism was so strong in the country at that time um, because they were still fighting the war that um, they they just couldn't allow um, this Japanese-American uh, regiment to uh, take that take that honor from what they thought should go to white soldiers. Um, it just wouldn't seem right. And it's possible that some people in the um, government at that time also realized that it might it might seem strange to some people who actually knew what was going on with Japanese Americans that um, here, here were these soldiers, American soldiers of Japanese descent, who were freeing Jews from... Um, this terrible situation in in, in, in Europe. So um, they just covered it all up and uh, never really gave credit where credit was due. Well, and the very fact of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team is, is you know, there's there, there's so much there. A uh, unit of Japanese-Americans fought in the European uh, theater. Some of them uh, joined right from the camps. Yes, yeah. Well, that, to me, is just... Uh, it, it's a, that's a bitter one for me. I, I find that really hard to take, and I don't quite understand how... I mean, I, I understand that, as I say in the book, that the way that it was justified by the people themselves was that this was the only thing that was going to prove their loyalty, actually going out and joining the military and dying for the country. And I think that's right. I think they were right about that, that 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 was the ultimate sacrifice, and that's what they had to do to show that they were loyal American citizens and not secretly spying on Japan or spying for Japan and um, sending secret coded messages and all that kind of, um, you know, BS, basically. Um, So they they, uh, formed the the, um, 442nd and fought bravely and, of course, um, were at, at this point, I'm, I'm not sure that this is still a, an accurate fact, but at the time I was writing, they had suffered the most casualties of any um, regiment uh, at that, in that war. So um, I've heard some uh, pushback on that. I have no idea what, you know, what that was all about because I didn't follow it up. But um, my understanding is that, that the day at that uh, 442nd did 
experience the most casualties. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of how I leave it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, another uh, fascinating fact, I think you learned this later, uh, German POWs worked on your parents' farm. Yes, that was a shock too. My sister, who uh, was old enough to um, have have just noticed that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, she was four years older than than I. She's sadly um, no longer with us, but um, yeah, she was the one who told me, and I I was just stunned. I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It just seemed like such a bizarre irony that I I just. I I just had to put it down in black and white and kind of look at it for a while and think about it because it was so bizarre. Yeah, that is that is. Well, we reached the 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 end of our time here. Um, the the book's a fascinating book. Uh, it's out from University Press of uh, Colorado. Forced out: A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. And Judy Kawamoto has uh, joined us. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I really really appreciate this this opportunity and thank you for for doing this and for doing uh, all your good work which is which is terrific thank you so much that following this <laughs>